0: Open up your Bibles to 1 Timothy and let's finish. We'll finish up the letter this morning. As you're turning there, as you're preparing, I've got a question for you to consider. Have you taken hold of eternal life? How certain... Are you? And on what do you base that certainty? So this is first Timothy. Paul would go on and write a second letter to Timothy and one of its most famous verses is in chapter four. We're at the end of his ministry and even, I think, sensing that he's near the end of his life. He says, I fought the good fight. And you could probably finish it for me. I have finished the race. I've kept the faith. We know this verse very well. It's very often quoted or read or part of funeral services for Devoted followers of Christ. Certainly, it's something that we would be able, we would love to be able to say about ourselves near the end of our lives. It would be even nicer if someone said it about us. You can really hear in those words of Paul's a sense of confidence, a sense of certainty. He goes on to say in the next verse that there is laid up for him a crown of righteousness that he knows the Lord will give him on that day. It's safe to say that Paul believes that he has taken hold of eternal life. And in a real sense, this letter to Timothy that we've been studying is about eternal life. I've given you the the background and the context multiple times, so I won't go into it in great detail, but Paul leaves Timothy in Ephesus and later writes this letter to him. He's left him there to deal with the problem that a different doctrine has been spread by false teachers there. The gospel has been sidelined by this different doctrine and disastrous consequences have occurred. People have made shipwreck of their faith. Some have left the faith altogether. These are certainly matters of eternal life. Eternal life is on the line here. And as our passage this morning closes out this letter... It's zeroing in on eternal life and what it means to have taken hold of it. So if you're able, I'd ask that you stand for the reading of God's Word. 1 Timothy 6, verses 11 through 21. This is the Word of God. But as for you, a man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, Love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you, in the presence of God who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus who, in his testimony before Pontius Pilate, made the good confession. To keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which He will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only Sovereign, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in an in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To Him, the honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good works, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. May God bless the hearing and the teaching of His inspired inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word. Let's pray together. Oh God, would you come and help us as we finish up this letter this morning? Uh, Would you take all the truths that we've seen in this letter? All of these things that your word says are useful for us. And would you use them in us? Would You help us take a deep knowledge of the Gospel and sink it down into our hearts? Change us by its power. Make us useful and usable in Your Kingdom for Your work. Both for Your glory and for our good, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. So there are four things from this passage that I'd like for us to consider about eternal life and about pondering whether or not we've taken hold of it. And so those four uh, is that eternal life is actively pursued, eternal life is based on trust, it's entirely God-focused, and it's built on a firm foundation. So we'll start with the first one, obviously, that it is actively pursued. Now, I was, I was struck by the strong action words in this passage, especially in verses 11 and 12. They just kind of jump out at you. Right? You see them there. Flee. Pursue. Fight. Fight. Take hold. These are, these are words of decisive action and they're very much in line with Paul's words that, that he expressed near the end of his own life. That he had finished the race. That he had fought the fight. And I think there are two important things about these words. And the first is that they are in fact active. right? Paul is calling Timothy and therefore he's calling us to do something. Not to just sit back and observe or, or twiddle our thumbs, but to do something, to engage, to participate. And The second thing about these words is that they're rooted in the present and not in the past. And here's where I think maybe we need to be cautioned or, or maybe even warned. Because when I first asked you about Eternal life. Have you taken hold of it? How certain are you? And if so, why are you certain? If your certainty is based on something solely in the past, without anything in the present that backs that up, that's a problem. if your certainty is based solely on something in the past without anything in the present to back it up, that's cause for concern. Because something may have happened in the past. Emotions may have been stirred up. Some type of a decision may have been made. Some type of intellectual knowledge about God or about the Lord Jesus may have increased But if your life looks no different today than it did back then, that's a problem. Now I've got more on this to say when we get to the fourth point. But suffice it to say here that Scripture never speaks of assurance of salvation or of certainty of eternal life in the past tense. It's always rooted in present realities. Every single time. Now, for some of you, when you read these action words and you see words like pursue and fight, right, they get you a little excited, right? Your pulse quickens a little bit. You say, Yeah, I like hard work. Right? I'm up for a challenge, let's go. Right, Which is all well and good, but hang on just a second until we get the full picture of what's going on. Because there is action involved. And eternal life is actively pursued, but it's also based completely on trust, which is our second point. When you first saw, in verse 11, the pursue righteousness, what is the very next thing that you thought of? As soon as you see that pursue righteousness, boom, my mind goes instantly to, and you fill in the blank. This is actually a really good diagnostic question. For when we come across all of scriptures, many many, many commands about righteousness and about holiness, right, even that psalm that we sang this morning right psalm twenty four right and, and and who can ascend the hill of the Lord, who can appear in his presence, only he who has clean hands and a pure heart when you see these commands about righteousness and about holiness, what do those commands instantly make you think of? Do they instantly make you think of what you need to do? Or do they instantly remind you of what has already been done for you? a huge difference there's a gulf that separates those two and it's important when you see the command pursue righteousness do you instantly think man I gotta get busy (laughs) or do you instantly think of your savior And how He lived righteously on your behalf. It's a very important topic. Righteousness. Holiness. Obedience. See, we have actually a righteousness problem. Romans 1 is a is a good place to we won't look there this morning but that's a good place to get a handle of what our righteousness problem is before a holy God. But here's our righteousness problem in summary form. God requires it. He's serious about it. He's holy and he demands that we be holy. He expects righteousness from us and we don't have it. Nor are we able to produce it. It's a big problem. We haven't kept any of God's law fully or with right motive. But in the gospel, we have our solution. Because in the gospel, Jesus comes and he perfectly fulfills all righteousness. And in this great exchange of the gospel, He takes our sin and He gives us His righteousness. Right? That's, that's the essence of the gospel right there in a nutshell. He takes our sin. He pays for it. He suffers and bleeds and dies for our sin and gives us the righteousness of that he fulfilled with his entire life. And while I do need to eventually get to the place where I am thinking about, well, what should I do? What ought my obedience look like in response to this? That's the cart. And the horse pulling that cart is the perfect obedience and righteousness of Christ. That's the first place our minds ought to go instinctively, immediately when we see pursue righteousness. Oh, my Savior. Oh, my Savior. That's the source of my righteousness. That's the source of my right standing with the Father. That's what gives me peace with God. That's what then will enable me to seek to live righteously without fear, without dread of condemnation because of the righteousness that my Savior has supplied and provided. And so here's where the trust comes in. Eternal life, the second point, based entirely on trust. Verse 12 is kind of interesting there where it makes reference to Timothy's confession. Because you see, there did come a point in Timothy's life when he made a good confession about this. He made a profession of his trust, not in his own righteousness, not in his own ability, but in the righteousness of another. And so his good confession in the presence of many witnesses was, I'm trusting him all of my eggs are in the basket of his righteousness on my behalf that's what i'm trusting that's where my hope and certainty of eternal life is is based so eternal life is actively pursued by trusting deeply in our savior Third point, eternal life is entirely God-focused. More specifically, it's based on who God is and what He's done for us in Christ. When thinking about what is eternal life, I think about the prayer that Jesus prayed that's recorded in John 17. It's called his high priestly prayer. He's nearing the end of his life and he's praying for his followers. And he starts out that prayer by praying about eternal life. And he prays to his father. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you've given him authority over all flesh. To give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. And this is eternal life. I love it when it's just so clear like that. It's very helpful. This is eternal life. That they know you. The only true God. And Jesus Christ whom you've sent. This is eternal life. Knowing the Father and the Son that He sent. You see, eternal life is not just a way of, avo- of avoiding something negative. Because we might have the tendency to think about that. You know, Think about John 3.16, right? Gave a son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And so sometimes we just sort of think of, well, eternal life is just the opposite of perishing. Right? It's, it's a means by which we don't perish. But it's actually its own wonderfully positive thing in its own right to be pursued, to be taken hold of, to be enjoyed. Because eternal life is knowing and being in relationship with and being loved by the Father, the very creator of the universe. And so these instructions that Paul gives to Timothy are in light of that. You see that in verse 13. I, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life. This God who is in fact the very source of life. And so this whole deal is entirely God-focused. It's entirely centered on him. And you see that from what Paul does in these next few verses in 13 through 16. He's just giving us a great reminder of who God is. And you could just make a list from these verses. right? He is, in fact, the giver of life. And you've got this weird little thing in, in 13 about... Jesus giving a confession so we had Timothy's confession and it's talking about Jesus giving a, a confession before Pontius Pilate well what exactly was he confessing there that he was king that he was king of a kingdom that's not of this world right? so he's, he's the giver of life he's the king, he, he's not just the king he's the king who's coming back at just the right time So He's Lord over time. And He's blessed. And He's the only sovereign. And He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And He is immortal. If you're going to be the giver of eternal life, you yourself certainly have to be immortal. And because of this unapproachable light, He's radiant. And He's invisible. And we can't see Him. He's worthy of honor. His rule is forever. And so do you see what has happened here with Paul? Even talking about it, even trying to describe it, he's swept up in who God is. And he ends up in sort of just this spontaneous outburst of praise. Because when you're reminded of who He is and you're reminded of what He's done, that's sort of the only logical outcome. That's the only place you can end up is in praise to our glorious God and our beautiful Savior. And this is eternal life. This in and of itself is eternal life. Because I wonder, when I, when I, back to when I first asked about eternal life, have you taken hold of it? What were your thoughts about eternal life? What was the substance of that that you were thinking about? Well, what is eternal life? Think about the picture that Revelation gives us. Gathered around the throne. This constant chorus booming in the background of holy, holy, holy. And us getting to to join in declaring worthy is the Lamb who was slain. So here's maybe another diagnostic question for you. What is it about eternal life that is so enticing to you? What are you most looking forward to? Is it simply the absence of hell? Maybe it's the presence of loved ones who have died before you and gone on. Is it that there will be no more pain or sickness? Are these the things that you're most looking forward to? Or is beholding the Lamb who was slain your most burning desire? is falling at His feet and crying, Worthy. Because if anything other than the Lamb and the Father who sent Him is at the center of our hearts' deepest desires and longings about eternal life, then we're way off base. Because it's all about him. It is entirely about him and his glory and his exaltation. Jesus said, This is eternal life that they may know you. And see, this was the problem in Ephesus. This is what made that different doctrine so toxic that the false teachers were spreading is because it took the focus off of its rightful place and put it elsewhere. And so this is part of why Paul is so urgent about this with Timothy in verse 20. And he's saying, you've got to guard it. You have got to guard this. There are going to be other things that are going to vie for first place. There are going to be things that compete for the attention that only the Father and the Son whom He sent rightfully deserve. We've got to fight against it. We've got to keep making much of Christ and of His Gospel against all of these other lesser alternatives. Eternal life is entirely God-centered. And finally, eternal life is built on a firm foundation. So Paul slips in this last little bit of instruction here at the very end of his letter. Uh, Last week's passage, we had some instructions warning against the desire to be rich. And now we've got some instruction for those who already are. And so it's just very practical. Two things to avoid and one thing to pursue. We see in verse 17 and 18. Don't be arrogant about your wealth. And don't trust your wealth. And there's a good reason to not do either of those things. It's because God provided it in the first place. If you have it, It's only because you received it. It was given. And trust is rightly placed only in the one who gave it to you. And so then those are the two things to avoid. And the the one positive command is to be generous, to share, to be rich in good works. Now here's really the interesting part, and here's where the firm foundation comes in, is in verse 19. If we do those things, if, if we avoid being arrogant about it and trusting in it, and if we seek to be generous with it and to share it, then we're storing up treasure for ourselves as a good foundation for the future so that we may take hold of that which is truly life. Now back in the first point I said that eternal life is rooted in the present. Right? And that if our life looks no different now than it did from when we had whatever experience or decision or whatever it was back then, if life looks no different today then we got a problem. Because if you've really taken hold of eternal life, if you've really trusted Jesus and his gospel, your life will be changed and transformed. And when your life is changed and transformed, it will bring with it great hope and great confidence. Because it's the proof that we belong to Him. It's the proof that the gospel is alive and well And doing its thing inside of us, and it's leaving its evidence and its proof for all to see. The change that the gospel brings is a good foundation for the future, right? That's the treasure that's being stored up for us. Hope, certainty. We know that we're His. And so I love that these last words of instruction are included here. It's almost like maybe Paul forgot. He's like, oh, yeah, let me add this before I close. Paul's good to do that. But these last little instructions, it's a a perfect example of how the gospel changes us. Because in our lack of righteousness, remember our righteousness problem? In our lack of righteousness, we are by nature inclined to do all the things that He's wanting us not to do. Right? We are inclined by our sinful nature to be arrogant, to be prideful, to think too much of ourselves. We are inclined to trust everything but the Father. And we are inclined... To think about me, 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 and me. Which doesn't make for a very generous person. But through the power of the gospel, all of these things are addressed. Rather than being arrogant, the gospel forces us to a place of deep humility. as we come face to face with the reality of our need that we do in fact have a lack of righteousness and there's nothing that we can do in our power to solve it that it was so bad in fact that the Son of God had to die to fix it that's deeply humbling deeply humbling humbling and so the gospel brings a deep trust in our Father because He's the one who provides for all of our needs material needs, certainly spiritual needs. We couldn't come up with the righteousness that He requires, so He provides it for us. He richly provides all things. His provision, though, came at a great, great cost to himself. He was generous beyond measure. Beyond our ability to even understand it. And it's his provision and his generosity that actually changes and transforms us. Because you see, the the real work of gospel transformation is meditating upon and soaking in these truths of our deep need, of the trustworthiness of the Father, of His generosity and selflessness. And so when we get our minds and our hearts wrapped around His amazing provision for us, even as we talked some about last week, that, that He met our greatest eternal need by giving His Son then how will He not also along with Him graciously give us everything we need? When we get our hearts and our minds wrapped around His incredible generosity toward us, how can we then not be generous with those around us? How can we not? He's richly provided for me. Now I'm I'm free to give and I'm free to share because I trust Him to keep on providing for me. Y'all, you know, this is gospel transformation. And it's truly a work of His grace. And that is where we find ourselves at the end of this letter. That's where we began this letter, is with grace. Remember the very beginning. Paul, an apostle of the Lord Jesus, grace to you. And now He's finishing it. Grace be with you. God's riches. At Christ's expense. Y'all, this is eternal life. This is it. Have you taken hold of it? Let's pray. Father, indeed, you are the giver of all good things, you do richly provide for your people. And You have provided eternal life and the means to take hold of it. You, through Your grace and the transforming power of the Gospel, have provided all that we need to actively pursue it and to take hold of it and to trust You for it. To see that You're the very center of it and that Your glory... And the Lord Jesus' exaltation is the point. And you've given to us through all of this, especially through the transforming power of the gospel, great hope and great certainty, that we can know that we can know that we're yours, that we can know that we've taken hold of eternal life because you've taken hold of us. O oh Lord, do a work of grace in our hearts even this morning. Grab us more tightly. Help us to know the security more fully that comes from this glorious Gospel that You've richly provided for us. We pray in Christ's name and for His sake. Amen.